Hi, welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. I'm Dr. Yishan, a licensed clinical psychologist, board-certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist, and adjunct clinical faculty at Stanford School of Medicine. Do you use social media before sleep? Have you noticed any impact of poor sleep on your attention and performance? Our guest today, Dr. John Saito, will share with us how toxic night impacts our attention and how to understand the brain science behind it. Dr. Saito is board certified in both pulmonology and pediatrics. Dr. Saito is an assistant professor at Texas A&M School of Medicine and was the director of pediatric pulmonary and allergy at Scott White Hospital in Temple, Texas. He specialized in the care of children with respiratory disorders such as asthma, chronic lung disease of prematurity, and obstructive sleep apnea, along with all disorders of sleep, uh, including restless leg syndrome and insomnia. He believes that living well comes from breathing well and sleeping well. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Let's welcome Dr. Saito. Hello, Dr. Saito. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to have you. And uh, I know you're going to share something really important and new to us. So before that, can you please um, briefly introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, my name is John Saito. I am board certified in pediatric, pulmonary, and sleep medicine. And I've been working with the uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine uh, Public Advisory Committee uh, over the past three years. So I've had a, a chance to interface with different areas, uh, including my own private practice in Down um, Valley in Southern California. So I take care of not only kids, but, you know, the parents and even the grandparents. So I uh, have a ability to kind of appreciate multi-generational uh, observation, especially when it comes to you know, ADHD, which is increasing in prevalence. Yeah. Wow. Very, very important. I know a lot of parents have all these concerns for their children. And I'm, I'm sure uh, parents' sleep behavior or health behaviors impact their children too. So uh, I know you create a really interesting and important term called toxic sleep. Can you explain more to us what that is about? Where does this come from? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, over the course of my practice, what I begin to appreciate is that, you know, when something goes wrong, we typically define the symptoms, but we really don't search for the underlying root cause. And so, you know, as an analogy, uh, we are now more aware about something like diabetes. And so we recognize that, you know, diabetes is not just only about the blood sugar, but it's really about the insulin. But the treatment really is exacerbating the symptoms, meaning more insulin over time is actually more toxic to your system. And as we dive into the information, we start to recognize it's the sugar that the kids and even adults are exposed to chronically 
that is causing all these problems that ultimately lead down the, the path that we describe as diabetes. So things like fructose and uh, sucrose that is laced in our food system that is causing all these problems. So similarly, you know, when we talk about a brain disorder or neurodevelopmental disorder um, like ADHD, um, what we need to do is not only describe what's going on, but uh, begin to look back into what is the toxicity in the system that is contributing to this rising prevalence of this neurodevelopmental disorder. So my suspicion is that the night, and I, my broader term is called toxic night, is that we are losing our biological night progressively with the light exposure, with social media, is eating into our biologic night and it's affecting our children during their developmental period that is highly sensitive to protecting the night. And then that's compounded by, of course, if you're sleeping and you're having a sleep disorder where you have uh, disordered breathing, uh, where you're having sleep disruption, poor environment, etc., that will add to the burden that ultimately will lead to, I think, hardware change, if you will, meaning that the brain is altered and the connection uh, in the different parts of the brain that is altered. And ultimately, it will manifest into, you know, symptoms that we observe or the teachers observe or the parents observe. Wow. I like all these analogies and this concept to really encourage everyone look deeper. So not only the surface level symptoms really go down to see if there's something um, long lasting change really happening. Is there some something wired differently in our brain? And sounds like sleep habit or what happened during sleep at night could really impact our brain, especially for children. Right. So there's a concept, what fires together, wires together, right? It's kind of our process. As we are learning new things and doing things, we are making connections. And at night, when we are sleeping, that connection is fortified and strengthened during our sleep. And so if we are constantly making a certain connection that is uh, tied to our reward system or a pleasure system, why would you expect the brain to be patient when all you're doing is rewarding it all day? Would it be surprising to think that addiction to things like social media, to instant gratification, to TikTok as an example, right? So it really... Uh, something that has been observed repeatedly. But, you know, we want to address more than just the pleasure-seeking, the addiction, you know, the, the poor attention, the impulsivity, the, you know, the lack of emotional uh, stability. That suggests there's many brain domains that are impacted when this is occurring. You know, the other side to the firing and wiring together 
is the idea that synaptic pruning is occurring for the brain as a child's brain is developing. What that means is that when you're sleeping, what's irrelevant information is pruned away, right? So less static, if you will, so that we can learn the tasks, so that we can stay focused, we can we can encode memory, those kinds of things. But if these other process of synaptic pruning isn't occurring, well, it wouldn't be surprising that the wiring may be uh, messed up, right, for lack of a better term. We don't quite know yet what the wiring and the firing impact is occurring, although there's research that's being done looking at functional MRI uh, metabolism to see when, you know, you are given a stimulus, how this stimulus triggers different parts of the brain. And the nice thing is that with advanced computing, they start to be able to, you know, collate all this information and be begin to observe a pattern. And what's interesting is that, you know, this pattern can occur in a child. And when they test the parents, they may see a similar pattern of firing and wiring. Oh, wow. So the parents and the children, their wiring could be very uh, similar to each other. That's correct. So, you know, this neurodevelopmental disorder is lifelong. It's, you know, if you suffer from ADHD, that perhaps 80% will continue to suffer through adulthood. Why does that occur? My suspicion, again, is the wiring is still intact. So the hardwire is there. And we're trying to work on how to change things through a software uh, programming program, which is possible, but it needs time to work. And really, there is an absence of or the lack of time for that to work because our cultural environment doesn't respect the power and the restorative ability to uh, help us recover during sleep. So if we, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, handicap our developmental brain process during childhood, our expectations should, you know, be tempered by the idea that the next generation won't have the same patience, won't have the same Temperament won't have the same response, right? So those are the things that we have to factor in. And these are the things that I advise the, my family, my parents, you know, when I go talk to the school, uh, you know, we really haven't paid attention. We're only paying attention to the symptoms. Right, right. It's like if it's like, Fire. If the symptoms are fire, we keep on just putting off the fire. But new fire gonna come out in other places without finding out the root cause. And when you talk about the hardware and software, that make me think. You know, we possibly can help kids to develop and to program differently. Uh, they could build healthy habit, but they also are impacted by a lot of the social media and this. Just modern technology, right? It's just part of their life. So they, they're going to be programmed differently than us. But on the other hand, I'm thinking about the hardware part because as younger children, their brain, all these neurons are really developed fast. 
I think, and I remember for the sleep part, right? So uh, young babies, and they are developing and their own circadian rhythm very quickly uh, for the first six months to one year. Then the hardware, will that be any difference gen- from generation to generation that we are impacted? My suspicion is that that will be borne out. You know, we understand there's a genetic component to it. And as we're learning epigenetics, we understand, you know, that what happens to mom and grandma can affect the child. So within a short period of time, you can have an influence in terms of the changes that may be occurring to that circadian rhythm. I think, you know, you can rewire the, the same concept of firing and wiring when we address cognitive behavioral therapy, these kinds of things, it can be because it's refiring or rewiring a different pathway. But you need to tune away that the, you know, less optimal pathway or that you need to build a connection above ones that are fixed. But the question is, you know, to what extent is it fixed? How, to what extent is it embedded? To what degree, right? Everything is kind of based on the nuances of severity. Early diagnosis, early recognition is super important to, in that developmental brain. We expect our frontal cortex not to mature until we're about 25 years of age, right? But if we continue to impair its development, that 25-year person may be, in terms of maturity, at 21, you know. But this becomes a greater concern in our teenage where impulsivity is already a problem and uh, making decisions about reproductive health is probably not ideal in this situation, even in generations past. Can you imagine what would be happening now where, you know, impulsive Young people are having children that are likely to be just as impulsive and just as disorganized. So they'll have less structure to work with, not only socially, but biologically. So that's where my concern is, is this toxic night is already permeating through our system. And we are just recognizing the symptoms, but not necessarily the toxicity. Right. I really like what you mentioned. We should uh, try to get early diagnose and early intervention. When we think about diagnose for younger children, it's actually not many providers really consider include this toxic night or problems at night into diagnose, right? For example, my clinic, we do neuropsychological assessment. So we do diagnose ADHD, autism, and other uh, different neuropsychological disorders. But the sleep is not part of that. And I know I heard from some other sleep doctors talking about, oh, we should really combine sleep diagnose into some of this psychological diagnose. So I'm wondering, what do you think? Is that a direction we should consider? Is that possible? Uh, what if the provider does not have the sleep training? What can we do? Yeah, it's a challenge, you know, um, the sleep field, while we try to advocate and educate, you know, many things are low to permeate into 
the community. And um, as parents or young parents, people are very uh, aware of how important sleep is, right? But as older, they have this base assumption that, oh, everything is fine. But this is where the gap is occurring before you manifest uh, illness or disease you know, that injury or that um, toxicity has been occurring. So a similar analogy, you know, as they say, by the time you diagnose someone with Alzheimer clinically, they've been suffering with it for at least 15 to 20 years. Because the issue is that, you know, as good as we are in terms of our history, uh, we need to address the issue before the symptoms present itself. So the challenge. So when you're seeing patients or clients, you know, you you really have to address where they've been, where they are, and where they need to go. And based on, of course, the age that, you know, the child is presenting at. So the earliest years are the hugest amount of neural wiring that may be occurring, right? You know, of course, any pediatrician will tell you early intervention is so important. The American Academy of Pediatrics talk about things like adverse events in life that lead to medical problems later on in life, right? So we know impacts early on can have lifelong negative effects. What I'm kind of presenting is this impact should be recognized even before the symptoms present itself. Then if we need to catch it so early, which is a great thing if we can, uh, I'm wondering what, as parents, for example, what are some warning signs? What are some signals they should pay attention to to help them detect possible toxic night early on? Right. So, you know, the typical uh, kind of, Average diagnosis age, if you will, might be seven years of age. But, you know, we, if we do our screening and they're very, uh, you know, attentive, we may be able to diagnose it as early as three, three and a half years of age. So, you know, presenting with things like, you know, uh, hyperactivity, you know, it's difficult just to assess because, there's a spectrum of what we consider is normal, right? So someone who may be all boy where they're all active and they're all into things and they're all girls, quote. so certain stereotype affect what we think, right? But this is in our traditional contact without the exposure to social media, to the blue lights, to all this stimulation that's occurring in this young brain context has changed and we're expecting an old idea of what this three-year-old child or four-year-old child will be. They come to your clinic and they're on the phone or their parents' phone or they have their own iPad. They've used it all day, all night, all through school or, you know, before bed. This is really a concern, you, you know, that should be addressed you know, um, by a pediatrician or by any primary caregiver, you know, and, and frankly should be kind of parental education, especially for young parents, 
because they too, the brain is still developing while they're developing this young baby's brain. That's a formula for, you know, bad outcomes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned the parental control. That's so important. Babies or children's young brain, how much this kind of uh, new technology stimulates, very strong, right? How much they can take in, how that impacts the wiring in the brain. I think parents need to know more about that, know more science, knowledge about that, and then to help them to make appropriate decisions to guide the child. And uh, I don't know whether there's an age range and the what how much parents should pay attention to. But I I think I heard from others that younger children possibly should be exposed to this social media and high technology less than older children, right? So the parent going to be the central role uh, to manage this. Right, exactly. So, you know, having a sleep routine, having a biologic dark versus a you know constant light before you turn it off you're firing brain and you're teaching is a brain you know fun pleasure joy until you crash and then you shut down and then when you turn back on what do you want fun pleasure joy right so you are training this brain for this condition and you're having expectation to go to school to concentrate, to have patience, to have emotional stability, that is counterposed to what you're actually training this brain to do. Wow, totally. That totally makes sense. When you said that, I was like, oh, that's a lot of adult what we've been doing. We play phone, we watch something fun until the moment we fall asleep. And then the first thing we open our eyes is grab our phone and be online again and think about what that can do to a younger child's uh, brain, right? A lot of time now, when I watch those um, short videos online, I got hooked. I just, time just passed by. And I could not imagine if I was younger and back then, if we had this, how I going to resist that and still keep a good attention span to focus on school? There's no way. Right. So, you know, interestingly, the Surgeon General just came out with an advisory about social media and in children last week, right? Teenagers on average spend about three and a half hours on social media. And that, you know, even adolescent girls are addicted to the social media. So this addiction is already occurring in the adolescent, if not earlier it just hasn't been studied but it would not surprise me to say later on that this brain has been addicted even earlier than what we are recognizing because there's a lack of information or data but i think we should be able to use our brain and our understanding to say this formative years we are forming an addicted brain yeah that's scary <laughs> It is a little frightening in terms of to think about it. But again, it's for me, really identifying the toxicity in the system and really, you know, working on helping parents establish, you know, a good routine for themselves and for their children. Right. 
sounds like parents can really get the information, follow some general guidelines, and adjust their own schedule and help their children to adjust it. What if some parents, they are not able to figure out a good way for themselves? Uh, where do you think they can get help? Well, you know, of course, talking to their family provider, you know, and talking to their child's pediatrician will be helpful. I think um, the American Academy of Pediatrics is getting better and better in terms of meeting the primary uh, doctors, you know, about sleep health. Having difficulty, of course, consider a board-certified sleep specialist. You know, there are pediatric sleep specialists as well as, of course, adult sleep specialists that can, as you are taking care of parents, this is one of those entryway to say, have you considered what's going on in your child, right? Because that uh, routine is going to be maladaptive as the child progresses, when they go into upper grades, when they get to high school, when they get to college, all these things are going to continue to fracture and challenge this brain. And my concern is you hear in the news all the time where, you know, the seniors are bullied or the college student is sleep deprived, go on a rampage, right? What is likely they're um, subjected to acute sleep deprivation, you know, and that it triggers anxiety, depression, they're comorbid to this brain. And so they have a fracture or a break. And of course, access to weapons and this break in their psychology can lead to devastating outcomes. So I'm kind of worried that more and more occurrences like this will occur because we've conditioned this brain, what are we expecting in terms of training the brain to do one thing and expecting it to do something else? Right, right. I think as the, the technology develops, we all need to adjust our expectation also, but also the, the way we guide the children and ourselves. Sounds like children's problems um, are not only children's problem. It's a whole family's problem and it's a interacts with parents' problems, they impact each other. But I got a question from parents often that uh, they are thinking about, you know, cut off the internet and uh, have a technology curfew at night, right? A lot of parents, they just feel like uh, they cannot really control the, the children's usage of social media. So do you think that's a good suggestion for some families? Um. So, so going back to the sugar issue, right, the exposure to the sugar, it's an addiction. The brain craves that sugar, right? So the idea is, you know, can you reduce it slowly? Just like any, any addiction, you're going to undergo withdrawal. The brain is going to fight for what it wants. So if you need that dopamine and you deprive it of dopamine, you're going to have a very bad out- outcome, right, a bad response. Right, especially in a child brain who frontal cortex isn't regulated, right? So they don't have good impulse control. So this is where your guidance to kind of say this child or in this particular phase, you know, will need slower, you know, changes, not dramatic changes. So you know, you can't 
rewire it that quickly. But you need to strengthen the wiring and then give it time, meaning the time to sleep. So as much as we have all this therapy and we identified in school and we have these programs, and then they go home and instead of getting nine hours of sleep, they get five. So all that work in the day will not take in the night because the brain is still bricked. It's still not able to incorporate into learning memories and learning centers what you've worked so hard to do. And then you go back and you give them another three, four hours of working session. Under the same condition, it just seems counterproductive. Mm. Okay. So, so we're focused on one end mm. of to change the program, change the software, but we don't allow for the time to change the hardware. Yeah, I never thought about that angle. So really should think more sounds like long-termly. And and again, go back to your original idea, Not it's not just about the symptom. You cannot just target a symptom and contain them around the symptom. Have to think about deep down how you can slowly rewire the brain. And right. Yeah, sounds like a healthy sleep schedule um and some routine build up those like long-termly can help children teenagers rewire the brain right so you know the things that i tell my my parents uh, you know is what is their natural sleep time and if they have delayed sleep phase we need to work on you know improving that improving their circadian right and slowly their light exposure before that biological night. So you can have social media, but far away from your sleep so that you're developing a different routine. So you can convert to a book or, you know, something else that doesn't have that blue light exposure because that blue light can push your circadian rhythm, your, your biological sleep time as much as two hours later. So as much as you want to say, okay, we want to go to sleep at nine o'clock, but you have social media at nine, it's unreasonable to expect that child to just instantly fall asleep, right? Because it's working at that circadian rhythm that's been pushed back. And so the child's going to struggle for two hours trying to go to sleep and get frustrated and start to hate sleep because it's craving that dopamine from social media. So now sleep becomes a greater problem. And so now the child needs the social media as the pacifier to sleep. Mm -hmm. So of course, you'll hear parents and say, oh, I can't sleep unless the TV is on. I can't sleep unless, you know, I have some stimulation. Right. That to me is a clue that that brain is wired differently. And we need to work to rewire that brain. But if the parent's doing something, the child's going to do the exact same thing. No matter what you say, you know, is the, the, the term is, right? Do what I say and not what I do. Right. Yeah. And that work for the child. What you do, so you as a family have to be the role model. Uh, provide that change 
and be consistent with the change. And we know with kids, consistency is key. If, you know, the, the child goes to bed at nine, has that wind down and then goes to grandmom's house and grandmom says, do whatever you want. Or, you know, if they're coming from a broken home, one family versus another, that upheaval will disrupt that child's, you know, routine and rhythm. So there are many things socially that is affecting the biological process. And so it's not a simple one. So, you know, treatment, just like many things, should be kind of tailored and not be generic. But information about the possible harm should get disseminated to all parents. Right, right. Wow. So all this, like how parents can really help to maintain a consistency, healthy and uh, helpful, mostly, uh, routine, schedule, and habit in the whole family, not only among the children. Sounds like very important. So a lot of work on the parents um, to start from parents. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, as we become more aware, we have to think about the next generation. So when we talk to the parents and we say, you know, 80% of what your child is suffering will occur in adulthood. And what percent of that is heritable? So when your grandchild appears, does that predispose that grandchild to having similar, if not worse, symptoms? So, you know, it's multi-generational. So so to me, it's that level of impact that could be occurring. Because like uh, I said, you know, the data shows the prevalence is rising rapidly. And so why is that happening? And that's happening because it's been happening. Okay. So definitely, and so it's a whole family, it's a generation by generation and the different generations effort together. And so that totally makes sense, even for adults, when we see a specialist, if the provider can help mention a little bit, just help the adult think about their next and next, next generation is already gonna start making the change, right? Sometimes parents overly focus on children, they sometimes even throw a children to a psychologist or a provider, say, fix my child. Um, but it sounds like it's not just the child them- themselves. It's not just their problem. Everyone in the whole family system need to make some shift or change right. the mindset. Right. Not uncommon in my clinic. You know, you have uh, a mom bringing in a child and saying this child is not sleeping well. And then you have a sibling who's on the phone or the right a spouse's phone that would suggest that exposure you know is what is contributing to this child who's manifesting at this time but later on it will be this child on the phone the american saying is the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree certain behaviors certain you know physicality certain genetics there is you know a proximity uh, effect yeah, yeah. And also what you mentioned earlier, I think some part is how to help the children or the teenagers to develop self-soothing technique, not really rely on 
high technology, social media, or something else, how they can do something more calming, peaceful, uh, and they can control to soothe themselves right before bedtime as part of the bedtime routine. Right. When we talk about neurotransmitters and dopamine as being a pleasure, right, neurochemical, uh, I think there's a toxicity there. You know, the idea of pleasure and happiness. So this uh, warning from the Surgeon General really is kind of highlights the idea that, you know, the body image of children, their outlook, etc., is uh, negatively affected by social media. But that's because this dopamine reward system is in counterbalance by a serotonin happiness system. So the idea of serotonin is a happiness that comes from within. But socially, when we see the marketing and the advertising is, you're not happy unless you buy this. You're not happy unless you have this. So we talk about a material world, but that's because it's catering to that brain. That confusing pleasure and reward for happiness. So it's very difficult. So we need to be able to cultivate that. You know, when we talk about kids' health and brain health and psychological health or mental health, right? Is do we have that happiness drive or is it all driven by pleasure? But that's your area. <laughs> yeah. So I think all oh, that's why a lot of time we need teamwork, uh, different providers, different areas all together to help a family thrive, to have a child thrive. Right. Yeah. So from the sleep standpoint, if you sleep deprived, your perspective generally is very negative. So we say, you know, if you deprive someone of sleep chronically, they're going to be a half empty glass perspective. Right. But if you give that child enough sleep, that will be a half full glass. And that's kind of point out in studies that your your perception is more negative when you are chronically sleep deprived. Won't make us a better world if we approach it as half empty. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So how to be more optimistic in sleep, how to, because uh, I treat insomnia a lot. For sleep, a lot of that is perception. It's mindset, right? How we perceive it, how we interpret certain sleep uh, issues and uh, how we perceive um, sleep difficulties. And do we have the like correct knowledge or it just uh, all this wrong information randomly online on the social media? So all this, how we think impact how we behave um, right. around the sleep. Right. But how we rest and how we recover affects how we think. Mm. So, you know, uh, the snake chasing its tail, meaning, you know, is uh, very um, bidirectional or circular, is that both ends are just as important. So we need, if we want effective change, we have to affect the entire process. So, you know, as a sleep doctor, it's really trying to get people to respect their biological night. So when they're losing it and it's crumbling away, that, 
you know, to me is the toxicity of the that loss. Right. So well, that totally makes sense. Now think back this whole concept you talk about toxic night, right? So how everyone, I, I want to encourage everyone who is listening or watching to really think about how, what can you do to help prioritize sleep? Uh, not sacrifice your sleep easily for other things. And in what way you want to approach sleep, how you act, how you think, and really think about what sleep can do to you, to your brain, to your health, to your next generations. Right. That's the thing is, you know, culturally, we haven't respected sleep and we have foregone sleep for different reasons but uh, the social media the access to light especially bright blue light is changing our biology and changing our hardware but we are not aware of it and it's changing likely earlier on and i would only guess at this point but when someone looks into it i would guess it's probably changing in utero as the mom uh, is carrying that pregnancy, this exposure is probably occurring even before. You know, that's yet to be born now, but that's kind of my spe speculation at this juncture. Yeah, future parents, we're always looking for things to make sure that the baby is as good as it can be. And so we need to back this up even in terms of earlier in life, earlier in conception or even preconception. Right. So we know in terms of fertility, et cetera, if, you know, your circadian rhythm is alignment, you're going to have better success. So as we continue to back this up, we keep seeing where potentially this toxicity in that night can be disrupting our biological system in various ways. Yes. All these are uh, very important topics and for everyone to really pay attention and remember. And I know ASM has a lot of uh, resources as well. And uh, um, at the end of our show, is there like, uh, I think you mentioned some resources already. If anyone uh, got inspired by our conversation, where can they find more information to read, to understand? I think, uh, you know, I'm part of the ASSM. So um, it's a trusted source of information by board certification, you know, with expertise and ongoing research. And we always have information that gets updated, you know, and is available for people to seek as a resource for all these uh, sleep conditions. So, you know, there's so much information online, buffer it with trusted sources of information. You know, of course, some information comes out sooner rather than later, and some data is not meeting the criteria to, to put into guidelines quite yet. So talking to a sleep specialist or someone who's kind of more current in their um, process and thinking and literature so that they can incorporate that into the child or the patient, you know, making it more specific and, and not a generality. So, you know, along those lines, things like medication, 
uh, I'm kind of concerned that we're a little bit too quick on utilizing medication. They are effective, right? But, you know, treating the symptoms does not treat the toxicity. So I like analogies, but, you know, if you take something to reduce your fever, it doesn't address why you have the fever, right? But the issue for me is that developing brain is now seeing stimulants, seeing more dopamine, seeing all these things, right? In the long term, how does that help with the rewiring of the brain or does it, you know, do the opposite? Is it like insulin? Is that more is not necessarily better in the long term? Right, right. And I really like all the concepts you shared and sounds like you're doing great work um, in your own field. So if our audience are curious about your work, your clinic, and or if they live in California, they want to seek your help, how can they find you? Uh, I can be reached uh, at my website. It's called mysleepmd.com. I can be reached directly through my email. It's artinmedicine at yahoo.com. So hopefully that'll be number, yeah, because I'm an artist, so I enjoy painting and kinds of things. So uh, I think it has therapeutic benefit, at least for me, uh, and it helps me be happier. So that creativity is something, uh, you know, as you probably appreciate, I'm really aware of that brain and developing that brain to be as rich as possible. So encourage things like creativity is great for sleep. If you, you know, paint or if you do some creative endeavor, it changes your brain. It gives you a, a happiness, a reward that um, is very different from consumption of social media or, you know, Netflix or any of these other things. Um, I think that's kind of lacking in our life, in, in our children's life. And so fortunately, in many places, programs are eliminating creative processes in schools, etc. right? Because we're trying to uh, force this brain to do something um, rather than encourage this brain to develop. So we're always advocates, right? But we're advocates for uh, overall health. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you definitely uh, become a role model in this to modeling, right? There's uh, so many things you can try and enjoy that is out of this technology. And it totally can be combined but, you know, we want a balance. I think in Asian culture, I grew up in China, Asian culture is all about harmony and balance. So um, don't just squeeze into one corner. I only have this. I only want this. Even it gave me a lot of trouble. I still only want that. So how to spread our attention to try different things and see what's good for you? Right. Yeah, so I will put all your information down in the uh, below in the description uh, description box for uh, anyone who are interested to check it out. Right, right. So I hope our listeners uh, at least get the term toxic night. At first, it sounds odd, but you know, we put those blocks in place and put it into context and look into your own lives, you know, and, and understand wow, I'm actually giving away so much sleep time, 
right? And uh, uh, I think hopefully that seed will take root so that we can have greater changes. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sato, for sharing all this wonderful information and this awesome term, toxic night. And after our conversation, it totally makes sense to me. And to hopefully this really help everyone who are listening and watching to really think about uh, what's the relationship between our sleep and our brain development and what we can do to make some changes as needed. Right. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking with you. And perhaps we can talk again on other things. So after this conversation, what do you think about the relationship between sleep, ADHD, attention, and other brain functions? I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you have any questions about this topic, please feel free to leave me a message. Let me know. Thank you very much for listening. If you like my podcast, please consider leaving an honest review or a rating on Apple Podcast. This can really help more people find my podcast. I really appreciate to have you with me today. Just like what Dr. Saito said, hopefully you can breathe well and sleep well, then living a really good life. I'm Dr. Ishan. Thank you for listening today. I will see you next time. Bye. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently. And there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed.